Hi, my name is Adri, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 133. Look at how good and pleasing it is when families live together as one. It is like expensive oil poured over the head, running down onto the beard, Aaron's beard, which extended over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew on Mount Hermon streaming down onto the mountains of Zion, because it is there that the Lord has commanded the blessing, everlasting life, the word of the Lord. Hello, my name is David. The New Testament reading is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 13. Because of the grace that God gave me, I can say to each one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Instead, be reasonable, since God has measured out a portion of faith to each one of you. We have many parts in one body, but the parts don't all have the same function. In the same way, though there are many of us, we are one body in Christ, and individually we belong to each other. We have different gifts that are consistent with God's grace that has been given to us. If your gift is prophecy, you should prophesy in proportion to your faith. If your gift is service, devote yourself to serving. If your gift is teaching, devote yourself to teaching. If your gift is encouragement, devote yourself to encouraging. The one giving should do it with no strings attached. The leader should lead with passion. The one showing mercy should be, caref should be cheerful. Love should be shown without pretending. Hate evil and hold on to what is good. Love each other like members of your family. Be the best at showing honor to each other. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Be happy in your hope. Stand your ground when you're in trouble and devote yourselves to prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Diana. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Luke 15, verses 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, Your brother has arrived, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in, but his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, Look, I've served you all these years, and I never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you have never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. Then his father said, Son, 
You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would let your word speak to us this morning. Let it pierce our hearts, let it cause us to see you more clearly, and let, us, let it cause us to be formed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Jesus, save us from your followers. It's a common phrase. We hear it. We've heard it for a long time. People like Jesus, but they struggle with the church. We're almost tired of hearing it because of how familiar this refrain is. And yet it won't leave. Even in our day, people are drawn to Jesus. They hear stories about what Jesus did, and they think, what an amazing person. And yet it's the church, it's the community, community of the followers of Jesus that people normally have a sense of resistance to. Now, even for us, who are people who are in the church, we struggle with this idea of this notion that we're supposed to belong to the community of the people of God. Maybe one reason we struggle with this is because of the way our day, the, the age that we live in, teaches us to engage in community. See, I think, as one philosopher said, we have constructed a kind of buffered self, a self with many layers of buffering between me and others and so that you can't really impact me, you can't really affect me, your words won't really get to me. I've buffered myself between me and you so that while I put myself out there, I'm not really open to letting you affect me. This leads to a kind of community that has a veneer of vulnerability, okay? We see this uh, very particularly in social media where we put ourselves out there selectively. And so we might, on a whim, post a picture of our messy kitchen and say, see, I'm just like you. But we don't actually want to, to live stream all of the life in the, in the household that led to that messy kitchen or all of the yelling at the children to clean up the messy kitchen to no avail. And so it's only when we kind of say, oh, well, then we post it and we share it to be part of a hashtag kind of vulnerability. See, I'm just like you. I'm a mess too. <laughs> but if someone were to try to speak into that and to say, hey, might I offer some help? Or do you need something? Or we're vulnerable about a particular struggle and someone says, can I offer some advice? Immediately we say, ho, 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 well, wait a second here. I don't really want the interchange of a community. I just want the veneer of vulnerability. I just want the appearance of being open. But actually, when you start to infringe on me, when you start to challenge my selfishness and my pride, I actually don't want that. And if you, God forbid, say that I'm doing something wrong, then I'll stiff arm you with a Taylor Swift song, haters gonna hate, hate, hate. I don't actually want community. And so in our day, community is only useful in so much as it helps me become me. And I'm only, I'm only interested in community in so much as it helps me self-actualize, 
become a better version of me. But as soon as my community does not help me become a better me, then I'll see you later. The Lord is leading us to a different church, right? And the challenge of the gospel is to see community the other way around. What if the grace of God at work in you is not just for a better you, but for a better we, for a better community? How do we think about life in the community? Romans 12 goes on. We, last week we covered just the first two verses of it, but Romans 12 goes on to say to us that salvation is not a solo project. Salvation doesn't allow us to kind of hang with Jesus and Jesus and me alone. There's something that grace does. It forms us as a people. And so Romans 12 verse 3, Paul says, because of the grace that God gave me, I can say to each one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Instead, be reasonable since God has measured out a portion of faith to each one of you. And then skip down to verse 6. He says, We've, we have different gifts that are consistent with God's grace that has been given to us. Three times here, he's used the word grace and gift. And in the Greek, these are related words. The, form, the root word of that word grace is charis, but then the gifts of these words, the charismata, and Paul's using different forms as a way of saying the big G, capital G, grace of God has graced us, small g, with little gifts. But you might say, first of all, the church is a community of grace, formed by grace. The church is a community formed by grace. It's this group of people that had no business belonging to God, but thanks be to God, he reconciled us with himself. Amen? But this grace is cross-shaped. It doesn't just have a vertical dimension. It has a horizontal dimension. So Paul wants us to see to be a community formed by grace is to be reconciled vertically, us and God, and horizontally with one another. And so he goes on in verse 4 and 5, he says, we have many parts in one body, but the parts don't all have the same function. And in the same way, though there are many of us, we are one body in Christ, and individually we belong to each other. Now this is interesting. Many parts speaks to diversity, one body speaks to unity, and then we belong to each other speaks of mutuality. And so I want to say, secondly, then, the church is a community of diversity, unity, and mutuality. Now, think about this for a moment. Every one of those words matters. Every one of those words matters. Our society, we have kind of a secularized version of this where the only goal is diversity. Let's just get different, as many different types of people in the room. That's the goal. Woohoo! We achieved it, diversity. But Scripture doesn't treat diversity as an ending point. It treats it as a starting point. It assumes that God has made us differently. As my friend who pastors in Queens, New York, Rich Velotis, he likes to say, diversity is not the goal. You can find diversity on the subway car. Right? That's not the goal. Of the, it's all three of these things, diversity, held together in unity and with mutuality. That, that last word is particularly poignant because Paul says, we're members of one another. What a strange phrase. I mean, when you think about a social group, usually what we say is, we are members together of the same organization, right? Hey, we're members of the same gym. We're members of the same neighborhood association. We're members of the same library, whatever. Great, members of the same thing. But he says, no, 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 you're not members of the same organization. You're members of each other. 
This is not language that is borrowed from politics or business. This is language that's borrowed from biology. <laughs> this is the language that says the hip bone is connected to the whatever bone it's connected. This is the, the thing where we belong to one another, you and I. There's a mutuality to this. The other temptation of our age is to zero in on unity and as if erasing diversity is the strategy. So sometimes people will say to me, oh, Glenn, why do we have to talk about all this stuff? Can't we just remember that we're all part of the human race? I was giving a talk to a group of young people learning about Christian worldview and talking about God's design of race and difference and different languages and ethnicity. And this person says, I don't understand why you're making such a big deal about this. We're all members of the human race. And I said to her, I said, that is a secularized version of unity. That's a kind of unity that erases diversity. That's a kind of unity that imagines that differentiation was an accident of the creator. That's a kind of view of unity and of diversity that says, well, God didn't really mean for us all to be different. It's just, you know, fallen world and whatnot. But in Genesis we, give an, we get an account of God deliberately making a world uh, teeming with diversity. And in case that weren't enough, the very end of Scripture is John getting a vision of the redeemed. And the c- community of the redeemed is not a community of people who look like angels. He says, I beheld this great multitude from every race and tribe and language. All of a sudden, John says, this is the most beautiful choir I've ever heard because it's diversity in unity and mutuality glorifying God. So, yes, amen. So the vision that the gospel holds before us is not a cheap one that says, well, just get different people in the room. It's not a cheap one that says, well, let's all have unity because, you know, we all bleed the same and we're all human race and let's just sing we are the world. I mean, that's all cute, but that's not the gospel. The gospel cuts deeper than that. It says, how in the world can people who otherwise would not be fitted together all of a sudden be members of one another? How can this be? See, our differences are our markings of language and region and geography and family and kin. Do you know that we carry that into eternity? That means, that, another way to say this, diversity is part of God's glory in you. Diversity is part of God's glory in you. This difference, the differences in our, in our culture and language and, and makeup, all of this stuff, it's part of the glory of God, but it is meant to be held together in unity and mutuality. Now you say, well, that's nice, Glenn, but that's certainly not happening. You're right. And maybe it is some comfort, some comfort to know that it wasn't happening for the church in Rome either. And that's why Paul's writing this. You know, sometimes we romanticize the early church. Oh, they were always living in one accord. They were in one accord on the day of Pentecost. But after that, it seems like they were in unity, uh, disunity after that, right? It's like the saying goes, whenever two or three are gathered in his name, there will be discord, there will be strife, right? And the particular situation in this church in Rome, we've said this a number of times in the series, imagine a church that began with, let's just say, 30 Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah, 30 Jews who had begun to recognize Jesus as the true Messiah, and then they welcomed in 10 Gentile converts to the faith and 
that began, they began to hold steady for a little while. And then an emperor got upset at all the Jewish riots in Rome and blamed the Jews and kicked the Jews out and said, get out of the city. Now all of a sudden, the church in Rome looks like 10 Gentile believers. And they hold steady and they're trying to do their work and fellowship with one another. Maybe they multiply. Maybe they get to 20 Gentile believers in Jesus. Then a different emperor arises and says, you know what? Let's lift the ban on Jews. Come on back. They come back and these 30 Jewish believers come back and there's now 20 Gentile believers. And it's a little bit awkward. Because over time, the Jewish believers have started to say, well, we're the originals, you know. Jesus came from Abraham. We are from Abraham. And the Gentile believers are like, yeah, well, that didn't work out so well, did it? You know, like, I mean, we're the ones who didn't get kicked out, so just saying, hashtag, you know. And there's all this strife in the church. And this is a real thing. So when Paul says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, this is not general philosophy. This is not abstract virtue. This is pastoral advice. This is Paul saying, look, you Jews, don't think of yourself more highly because you came from Abraham, because if you forgot, y'all were unfaithful. And you Gentiles, don't, don't act like you've always been here, because y'all used to be idol worshipers. So just everybody recognized that except for the grace of God, we wouldn't be here. And so all of a sudden, it begins to hold this diversity together in, in unity and mutuality. But as you think about it, it takes more than that. Here we are on Reformation Sunday, so much to be thankful for, for the movement that helped lead to a purification of the church, and yet, and yet, we're also keenly aware of how it became an occasion for the disunification of the church. And so we simultaneously say, thank you, God, but oh God, make us one. And here we are realizing that it doesn't take long for a point of difference to become a place of division. And all of a sudden, things begin to fall apart. Yesterday, we saw for the second time in however many months, another attempt at a white supremacist rally somewhere in Tennessee. Chants of blood and soil, slogans borrowed from the Nazis. And I tweeted something out there asking pastors in the region to address racism in their own backyard that we have to see this as a gospel issue just as Paul did. And the tweet sort of caught fire and you know, different people you know, spread it and all this stuff, mostly positive. <laughs> you know how those things are. And one person said, I wish you weren't so influenced by Marxism. Now this took me aback because I've never read anything from Marx. <laughs> uh, nor do I watch really any news shows. Uh, I read a lot of theology. <laughs> And I read a lot of the scriptures. And so I said to this person, I said, well, you know, before Marx, there was Moses confronting Pharaoh for oppressing the slaves, saying to let the people go. And after Moses, there was Elijah who rebuked Ahab for oppressing the weak and marginalizing the outsiders. And after Elijah... There was Amos, and after Amos, there was Jonah, who didn't want the grace of God to extend. And after all of those guys was Jesus, whom the angel of the Lord said would bring the mighty low and lift up the lowly, would reverse the power differentials that create divisions and wounds. And after Jesus came Paul, who said in Christ, 
There won't be classism or racism or sexism. There's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female. He's saying don't let these differentials of power and divisions of class and race and, 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 and gender cause divisions in the church. And so I said, I'm not interested in, in whatever else, uh, what other philosophical system this may sound like to you. I'm interested in the gospel. And the gospel fits together people who shouldn't otherwise belong together. The gospel takes the difference and the diversity that the creator made and that the redeemer will redeem and fits them together in Jesus Christ as one body who become members of one another to the glory of God. And so the church becomes an embodied repudiation to any kind of ethnic superiority or nationalism. The, the, the church becomes the embodied rebuke to the spirit of the Antichrist that says one blood, one race, one nation over another. And we say, no, 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 no. He is the king of all kings, the Lord over all lords. And there is one body of the redeemed from every nation who belong to him. Now, to become this kind of community, you notice I worded this point that the church is called to be a community of diversity, unity, and mutuality. Called to be because we struggle to live this out. And so the third thing I want to say from this text is that the church is a community that requires cultivation. The church is a community that requires cultivation. Now, we wish it weren't so. We wish God would just sprinkle some sort of Holy Spirit angel dust and we would all just be so beautiful and loving to one another. But actually, why shouldn't we expect God to invite our participation? Isn't this what God did with Adam and Eve in the garden? God creates the whole world and calls it good, and then he sets the man and the woman in the garden and says, now work the garden. See, this may be bad news for some of you, but cultivating the, work, the world is a pre-fall call. Cultivating the world is a pre-fall call. Call. We don't join God in his work of cultivating the good seed and the fruit out of the soil. The result of the fall is that the ground's going to work against you. Culture's going to work against you. Your sinful nature's going to work against you. But the call to cultivate God's work has been there since the beginning. And so even when Jesus does the miracle of creating a new community, behold, we are this new reconciled community. Guess what? By the Holy Spirit, we are to help cultivate this community. It takes work. It takes work to cultivate mutuality and unity. It takes work. And Paul says one of the ways, one of the gifts that the Spirit has given us, well, one of the ways that the Spirit does this is through what we call sometimes the spiritual gifts. Verse 6 again. We have different gifts that are consistent with God's grace that has been given to us. I'd like to say the spiritual gifts are the result of the grace of God and they reveal the grace of God to others. We could say lots of things about the gifts. We've done series before, whole sermons on specific gifts of the Spirit. But for today, all that I want us to, say, to see is that the spiritual gifts are the result of the grace of God, and they reveal the grace of God to others. But look how they require our cultivation. The rest of verse 6, if your gift is prophecy, you should prophesy in proportion to your faith. If your gift is service, devote yourself. If your gift is teaching, devote yourself to teaching. If your gift is encouragement, devote yourself. The one giving should do it with no strings attached. The leader, lead with passion. The one showing mercy, be cheerful. What's Paul saying? It's not enough to just say, I've got the gift. Devote yourself to it. 
practice it. Learn how to use it with the right spirit, with the right fuel, with the right motivation. Because when you do, you're putting the grace of God on display. I mean, think about that. Think about that. Every time you function in these ways, you're putting the grace of God on display. I think about the people that come early on a Sunday morning and unload trailers and set up parking lot signs and stay late to load those same things up. I think of the people that stand in the lobby every Sunday and greet and hand out bulletins. I think of the people that are in our children's ministry trying to keep a baby from crying and playing, teaching the Word of God to our children and tearing down after that and the worship team that's here serving. They get up early on a Sunday morning, to, which is a big deal for musicians, and then they come and they practice and they serve and they're giving of themselves. Why? Because they're trying to put on display for all of you the grace of God. They're putting on this, look and see, behold, the grace of God. Why else would we do this? Why else would we serve this way? I think about our community taking meals to people after they've just had a baby. I keep hearing stories of it happening all the time. And I love it because no staff person was the centerpiece for that. No staff person was the catalyst for that occurring. People just doing it, just be in the church. Meal groups saying, let's go help a person clean their house, paint their house because they're going through a difficult time and they need to get rid of this house. And let's go help them redo this thing. Someone else showing up in the midst of family, a sickness with a child that's going on with one of our families right now in the church, families making a drive up to the hospital, taking meals, taking care of kids, cleaning the house for them while they're gone. This is the church, you guys. Putting it into practice, devoting themselves. And then Paul goes on and he starts to talk about love, the kind of love that marks this community. See, it's not just a community cultivated by these gifts. It's a community cultivated by Jesus' kind of love, right? And so verse 9, he says, love should be shown without pretending. And then he goes on this whole list. And it reminds me very much of Galatians 5 where Paul's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And it reminds me very much of 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul talks about what love looks like. And in fact, the grammar of the Greek in this is such that love is kind of this, the, sta- the sentence, that, that the statement, that the banner statement. And then there's participles all the way down kind of as if to say, and this is what love looks like. So if we were to read it that way, this is how we'd read it. This is what Christ-like love looks like. To the next slide there. This is what Christ-like love looks like. Love is genuine, abhorring the evil, clinging to the good, devoted to one another with brotherly love, affection, Philadelphia, outdoing one another, showing honor, not lacking in zeal, being fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in affliction. I mean, talk about that walking with one another through hard times, patient in that affliction, persevering in prayer. Hey, brother, I've been praying for you. Sister, I want you to know we have not stopped. We are continuing to call out to God for you, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. I particularly like the way that last one is worded, practicing hospitality, because I think it could be said for the whole list. Christ-like love takes practice. Christ-like love takes practice. Now, this is the thing that's kind of interesting because we, we, we would rather sort of say, well, isn't, isn't Christ-like love just this, this gift? And it is kind of true. The 
in classic Christian theology, love is viewed as an infused virtue. It's called an infused a virtue that could not come from anywhere else. It's alien to us. It has to be infused. Martin Luther was rebuking Aristotle's teachings by saying, look, Aristotle said just do the right things and you'll have the right uh, uh, qualities, character. And Luther says, no, no, that's not quite right. We need something from the outside. And that's true. We do. We need the gift of the Holy Spirit to make us new, give us a heart of flesh, able to love again. But having been given that newness, cultivate it. Practice it. This is an imperfect metaphor, but it's sort of like Christ has put in us the seed of this radical kind of love into the soil of our hearts. And then by the Holy Spirit, He invites us to be a farmer with Him. Help the seed grow and take root. Help the seed bear fruit. Cultivate it. Work with me. Join me in this. Let it grow. Practice it. This is what it looks like. Over the years when I think about this, I I find myself feeling profoundly grateful for friends who have been a picture of this for me. Uh, and and all, every stage of my growing up, I can think of friends that, that were part of this. And over the last 20 years or so of my life, there's a, a group of friends that are, that are like brothers to me. And there's more that belong to that brotherhood than are pictured in the picture I'm about to show you. So don't be offended if you're like, I'm, I wasn't in that picture. There's more than the picture. But the picture is symbolic, is representative of a group of friends. And there's a few of us every few months that disappear for a day together at the Franciscan Retreat Center off of Woodman. And this picture is from Monday. We were walking up the hill toward the end of the day. We'd spent the day together. It usually starts with breakfast somewhere and happens every three or four months. And so usually the breakfast is just a catch-up time. How's everybody been? And Usually in that moment, you kind of discern um, who ought to be the focus that day. You know, oh man, this person's carrying something, or there's a particular grief or need, or what you know. This day, it was sort of um, everyone, you know. And so after breakfast, we went back to the retreat center, and we started sharing, and, and we ended up praying over one another. And then as we're praying, I mean, you, you talk about, I'm glad Paul uses the, the phrase brotherly affection in here. Because there's, there's another, it's hard to describe when you're laying hands on one another and you're just kind of digging into the shoulder. And I mean, if someone was looking at you, but this kind of, I don't know what's going on here, you know. But there's this brotherly thing of, of encouraging with the laying on of hands and with prayer and prophesying over one another. So I just, you know, and it's not because we know one another, it's not like crystal ball prophecy. It's like, I just want to say, I see this. In you, I call this out. It led to a couple of the folks with a relationship that had been soured because of something. It led to repentance and reconciliation and tears in the afternoon, honest conversations, another meal, and then a walk. And I took the picture as a way of saying, man, this, this is a picture of this. This is a glimpse of this. This is not enough. You can't take this and say, that's my church. No, no, no. The church is more than this. But this is a little glimpse into what the community of the people of God can be like. 
when we journey with one another, when we practice these things that allow us to persevere in affliction, stick with it in prayer. I know when you listen to this, for many of you, you hear this and you think, well, that hasn't been my experience. That's not my story. In fact, for some of you, the wounds go deeper back than church. The wounds go all the way back to family of origin. And so even to just compare the church to a family is like uncomfortable. You say, well, I wasn't, I I hope the church is nothing like a family because my family was, and I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that those are the wounds and lenses that we bring into this. And I'm so sorry for other church experiences that were less than, you hear the phrase, Christ-like love takes practice, and you're like, well, maybe the people I were around needed more practice, you know. <laughs> and I'm so sorry for the, the hurt and the woundedness that makes it hard to leap again and trust again and journey again. I want to say to you that what, early, what the early Christians did in their imperfect churches was to keep coming back to the love of the Father. And somehow it's the love of the Father that doesn't just heal us, but that reminds us of our brothers and our sisters. The most beautiful, one of the most beautiful things about the prodigal son story is the end of the story. It's not actually about the prodigal son. You almost get the sense that the whole thing about the prodigal is just a setup. This is really a story about the father, and it's really a story about the older brother. Because that's the climactic moment of the telling of the story. I mean, the whole, the prodigal coming home is dramatic, but the story doesn't end there. It keeps going. And the, the ending moment of the story is when the older brother exits the house. You see, listen, both sons leave home. Both sons leave home. We sometimes miss this because we call it the prodigal son. Oh, one son left, both sons left home. In fact, the whole sequence of ratios for math lovers in Luke 15 is an escalating ratio of lostness. So first you have one sheep out of a hundred and the shepherd leaves the 99. Then Jesus tells another story. He says the woman had 10 coins and one was lost. Now we got one out of 10. That's 10%, not 1%. Then he tells a story about two sons and you hear the prodigal and you're like, oh, one of the sons is lost. And if you're prideful, if you're a good religious Jew listening to Jesus, you're thinking, well, I know that's not me. And then he gets to the end of the story and says that the older brother left the house. And then you're like, wait a minute, are you telling me that two out of two sons are lost? Jesus is like, bingo. The prodigal son story is essentially Romans 1 through 3 all over again. Gentiles were lost. They're the prodigal. Yeah, tell me something I don't know. Oh, Jews were unfaithful. They were lost too. (gasps) What? And so then the older brother who represents the firstborn, Israel, who represents the ones who should have known better, they're like us. And the older brother says to the father, he says, this son of yours. Notice how he names him. He doesn't say my brother. Listen, in Hebrew storytelling, how a character is named is hugely significant. And the older brother doesn't say, my brother returned. He doesn't, he doesn't associate himself relationally. He says, this son of yours. But the father, the father says, look, everything I've had is yours. But listen, this brother of yours. 
Every time you come to the Father and say, I like you, God, but I don't like this person, this other son of yours, this other daughter of yours, and the Father says, I hear you, but this brother of yours and this sister of yours, they're part of the family. See, here's the thing. In the Father's house, there's only one table. There's only one table. And this is why Jesus says, if you refuse mercy, you shall not receive mercy. Why? Because Jesus is imposing a kind of legalism about how we lose our salvation. No, he's just saying, there's only one party. And if you refuse to let someone else get in on the party, you're going to have to miss out on the party too. There's only one table at the Father's house. If you want the feast, you got to get the family too. If you want the feast, you got to get the family too. You want to say yes to the feast? You're saying yes to a family. Deal with it. This brother of yours, this sister of yours, we don't get off the hook. We don't get private dining with Jesus, me and Jesus, having a meal. That's why I don't, I'm not a fan of personal communions. You're missing the point. At Jesus' table, we're all there. We're all there. So get used to it. Lift up your head a little bit. Look to the left. Look to the right. Yes, he's there. She's there. They're there. They're all there. Jews, Gentiles, slaves. For you, we're all here. You want the feast? You've got to have the family. And that's why Jesus, Paul says at the beginning of this, don't think of each yourselves more highly than you ought. Humble yourself and realize that we are all depending on the Father's love. We're all only here because of the generosity of the Father. Older brother, younger brother, we're all depending on the generosity of the Father. So come on, good news. There's a feast and there's a family. Come on home. Did you bow your heads this morning?